Hi, everyone, and welcome back at the Macro Trading Floor. This is the most actionable macro podcast out there, and we promise you by the end of the podcast, you will have an actionable trade idea to look at. I'm Andreas Steno. And this is Alfonso Peccatiello. Hey, um, Andreas, actually, I have a question for you to start the podcast. We are recording on the 21st of July, 2022, straight after the ECB meeting. So I'm a journalist, and you are Lagarde. And I'm going to now ask you the most important question of the press conference. Madame Lagarde, how will the transmission protection instrument actually work? How? How? <laughs> that was as good as it gets when it comes to me imitating Madame Lagarde. Um, but but let, let's get to that meeting. Uh, I mean, it, it was basically a very, very important meeting for the European Central Bank. They had a lot at stake. Um, and honestly, I didn't think that they did too well. Well, Andreas, she had a very cringe voila moment at some point while trying to explain the forward guidance of the European Central Bank. But apart from that, I think market reactions are pretty interesting. We had the ECB hiking 50 basis point. So that was the hawkish surprise of the day. And the Euribor contract sold off and the front-end yields spiked up, but the back-end of the yield curve actually didn't. So you had this very, very sharp flattening of yield curves in, in Europe, where interestingly, as we highlighted, I think, a couple of episodes ago on the macro trading floor, you have a hawkish central bank or a hawkish inflationary print that would imply a hawkish central bank. And then you have the front-end selling off, but then you have long-end bond yields actually rallying. So that was the first message the bond market sent. The second one was on euro dollars and BTP bond spreads. So one of the tasks that the ECB faced was to design somehow a compromise policy where they could protect uh, um, Italian spreads and the euro against from fragmentation risks enough to make sure they can proceed with their forward guidance, which is to hike rates. And they designed a TPI, which is a transmission protect, uh, protection instrument, despite you also told me the acronymous stands for something else that so we are not going to touch upon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the euro actually was not very convinced about it. So we had first a spike on the announcement from 102 to 103, but then we retraced all the way back to 102. BTP boom spreads first attempted a very timid tightening, and then they widened all over back again. So the market is pretty unconvinced, and it agrees with you, Andreas, that they, they didn't do a fantastic job. But let's go into the details. Why do you think they didn't do an awesome job? Uh, let me start with that abbreviation, TPI. Uh, be before today, uh, we are recording on the ECB day, uh, Thursday, the 21st of, of July. Um, it was actually uh, used in cases where you suspected Cyphalus. So a TPI test is a Cyphalus test. Uh, but I guess after today, it means protect Italy. <laughs> but at, le at least if Italy is eligible for this program, and that's, uh, that's clearly a debatable after, after today. Uh, but let's get to the details because they essentially write that uh, this fragmentation tool will be put into place if there are unwarranted moves in the market. Um, so it's a, it's a way to sort of ensure that the ECB policy will actually transmit all the way through all member countries, right? Uh, and, a, and a way to close spreads, even though they don't really admit truly to it. Uh, but by the end of the day, um, you need to be eligible as a member country uh, before the TPI can be put into use for your local bond market. Uh, and the ECB, first of all, refers to the sort of fiscal framework of the European Union or the Eurozone rather. Uh, and if you take that at face value, you basically need to live up to uh, the convergency criteria in, in the Maastricht Treaty. I don't think you need to take it that literally, but uh, I mean, you certainly cannot overspend while at the same time being a part of the TBI program. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, so it makes it kind of debatable whether all uh, Southern European economies will be eligible for this program. Uh, at least it's not crystal clear by now. And then secondly, they also write that the balance sheet cannot grow as a consequence of TPI, uh, TPI sorry, um, at least not persistently. Uh, so they will have to invent some sort of counter mechanism if they start buying Italian bonds, for example. Um, of, of course, they could, go, they could go ahead and just sell, I don't know, German bonds to ensure that the balance sheet doesn't increase. They could also come up with more creative solutions via uh, liquidity measures. Um, but by the end of the day, uh, this is not really as strong a signal as I'd hoped for. 
I'd say, on the fragmentation tool. What do you make of it? I think your take is correct, Andreas. The four conditions to be eligible to TPI are all basically outside the control of the European Central Bank, a little bit like if they're trying to find political cover, basically, from the European Commission and even the ESM or the IMF to a certain extent to make countries eligible for for the TPI. And if you look at these conditions, I mean, a country mustn't be in, a, in an excessive deficit procedure or in an excessive macroeconomic imbalance procedure from the European Commission. And at the moment, the European Commission isn't very positive on countries like Cyprus or Greece or Italy where it comes to excessive macroeconomic imbalances. They are literally eligible. I mean, if you are very strict with it because they are not in a procedure, but they have some negative uh, feedback and recommendations to improve their situations. And if you think that Draghi just resigned, basically was forced by the parliament to resign yesterday, and Italy doesn't have a government, so it doesn't have basically an acting government that is able to deliver on these um, improvements or at least plans to improve that the European Commission might be demanding, you, you, know, you are in a situation where Italy, unfortunately, is not going to be able to handle this from a government perspective anywhere closer than late October, maybe November. Not earlier than that, there will be a new government in Italy. And then we'll need to discuss which government will be there, by the way, because polls are not pointing towards the most cohesive pro-European uh, government to be formed. Actually, at best, it's going to be fragmented. At worst, it's going to be some openly anti-European fiscal consolidation rules type of government. So I tend to agree that, you know, the tool is there. The conditions are, you know, somehow demanding. The Italian political situation makes everything much more blurry. So we are facing a situation which is quite delicate. I think, is it roughly two months ago, I went short euro dollar via the UUP ETF. Uh, that's a long uh, dollar structure versus... Uh, other big currencies. Uh, and the argument I used uh, was that the ECB um, is basically damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, and I think this is a, uh, basically a, a case, an example of that due to the fact that they actually try to solve things. But as soon as they try to solve things, people like us point to it and say, well, it doesn't really fix the issue. Um, and that's basically the story of the European Central Bank over the past 10 years, isn't it? Um, so I, I basically lean short in, in, in euro dollar still. Uh, and I'm even tempted to say that um, my conviction in buying long bonds increased after this meeting. I mean, Andreas, when you see a central bank coming in auction and long bonds rallying as a result of that, I think the bond market is like screaming that the tighter they get, the closer they get to further inversions and further you know, economic slowdowns that enhance actually the attractiveness of long end bonds. But enough with the, with the macro, I think for now, at least before we invite the guest on, because we do have a news to share with our uh, listeners, do we? Yeah, uh, Alfonso, I know that you're going to a conference uh, in New York in a couple of months time. Oh my God. And it, yeah. an Italian in New York. So basically <laughs> what's going to happen is that, uh, the myself and actually other very relevant people are going to be at the digital asset summit, which is the a Blockworks organized conference and Blockworks is the producer and sponsor of this podcast that you're listening to the macro trading floor. It's effectively a, a conference which, which sits at the intersection between crypto and macro. So there is going to be quite uh, some macro discussions to define what is the landscape in which crypto as an asset class is trading broadly. And you will hear quite some speakers there, the tune of Daniel DiMartino Booth or Mike Green. We are having already, uh, that I know of personally and not only, um, quite some institutional investors coming to join the, the, the conference, which is going to be in New York on the 13th and 14th of September at the Glass House in Manhattan, Andreas. Yeah, and I mean, if you're an institution, uh, a family office, hedge fund, um, whatever, and you want to uh, dig even further into crypto as a macro asset class, this is the conference to go to, in my opinion. Um, and we can offer you, the listeners of the show, uh, 20% off on the price of the conference with the code macro so m-a-c-r-o um we will of course post the link uh to the conference below in the subsection um once you've seen this and the fun part is that i'm going to be at the conference so i'm not sure if it's fun at least it's fun for me but if you want to come up in new york and have a chat with me 
uh, actually eat a pizza that can be defined as a pizza as well. I'm all up for it. So uh, <laughs> one reason to join or not to join the conference, as you wish, could be that you could see me there as well. Anyway, enough with the with the um, uh, with this. We should jump into uh, talking about what the guest will will be, who the guest will be today at the macro trading floor. Uh, I really admire this person. He's from Europe, by the way. Wow, we have somebody from Europe, not from the US. That's a news. I, I mean, um, I'm happy that uh, we didn't have to uh, take a decision within the European Central Bank, me and you and the guest today, because then I would be a minority against the southern part of Europe <laughs> because we have um, a, a tremendous guy from Spain joining the show today. And um, he's he's about to talk about China in a second. And I want to just highlight one story that I've been following quite uh, fiercely over the past few weeks from China, namely what's going on um, with the lack of mortgage payments uh, on home builder projects, because that is essentially a very interesting development in the real estate space in China. And remember that the Chinese real estate asset class, if you look at it in isolation, is bigger than the US equity market. This is big. Huge. Yeah. It's huge, as my my buddy Trump will say, huge. But Andreas, uh, let's uh, let's uh, stop you for a moment. The guest will be coming in in a second. It's time to introduce the guest of the week. Guys, time for the show with the guest right now. Very happy to introduce Diego Parilla today. Diego is a global macro hedge fund manager at Quadriga, and he's also a bestseller book writer. Actually, I think of at least a couple of bestsellers out there. Diego, very happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Alf and uh, Andreas. Diego, I, I wanted to ask you about a hot potato in global macro. Uh, I've noted the divergence between the Chinese business cycle and the Western business cycle over the past couple of years. What do you make of the business cycle in China and the West at the current juncture? I think it's one of the uh, critical drivers. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the big picture is we've seen uh, for, for decades now, every time that we face a problem, uh, central banks and governments haven't really solved those problems. They've really used monetary and fiscal policies, in some cases without limits, to basically delay, uh, kick the can down the road. Uh, through debt and spending. They have transferred the problem to their neighbors through uh, currency and trade wars. Uh, they have transformed the problem into inflation and inequality. And ultimately, they have enlarged the problem in uh, with bubbles too big to fail. Uh, whilst this is basically a global issue, uh, as you point out, the cycle uh, impacts different economies differently. And we find currently a massive divergence where the U.S., is perhaps uh, best positioned to try to address the extraordinarily difficult problem of inflation by hiking rates uh, in, into an economy that is arguably uh, strong and a credit situation that is arguably strong. Whereas uh, we have seen places like China, which are, in my opinion, in the other extreme, which are facing incredible issues such as uh, bubbles in, in real estate and infrastructure and economic situation that it's pushing them in exactly the opposite direction. So Diego, when we look at China right now, because we talk a lot about the US, it's time to look at the other side of the world right now. And you talk about the several challenges that China is facing, China and actually China's neighbors as well. So why don't you give us a bit of a highlight of the imbalances that you see in the Chinese economy at this moment? I would start with with the model, you know, the, uh, this obsession with, with control which, uh, if you think about it, goes from the, the one-child uh, policy to uh, the, the way credit flows and monetary policy through the banks and, and the state-owned entities. This idea that you can control growth to the first decimal or second point. And uh, all these ideas that give a sense of you know, the currency controls. I mean, I could keep going, right? Uh, the, how they handle COVID. Uh, this general idea, how they're fighting uh, uh, technology, the, the politics, the, 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 the difficulties, uh, I think, are in mo many, many dimensions. And, uh, and ultimately, I think, uh, put China, in, in, in my opinion, and I know this is very contrarian, as one of the most dangerous hotspots for, for the global uh, macro situation. I know people are very bullish. Uh, and you could even argue that, you know, all these 
credit expansion and fiscal issues are, are great. Uh, well, perhaps they were great in a, in a paradigm where people thought that, that there were no costs or prices. I think in this environment, this abuse will invariably lead to, um, to massive currency weakness. But I think if you look at other neighbors that they're closely linked, I think uh, Hong Kong is uh, it's a very interesting case. Uh, Hong Kong, is, is as, a, as a business model, has dramatically changed in the last few years. Uh, if you think about it, it used to be the third largest harbor in, in the world. Now they have Shenzhen next door in, in, in China. Uh, it used to be one of the most important global financial hubs as a gateway to, to China and Northeast uh, Asia. Uh, now you have Beijing and Shanghai and, and others. Uh, it used to be a place of stability, you know, from a rule of law or where you could put your savings and control. It's, it's no longer the case. And so I think the situation for Hong Kong is dramatically changed. I would argue they're a lot closer to China than the U.S. Yet uh, you think about some of the monetary uh, and, and fiscal measures and, and, and the, the Hong Kong uh, dollar is pegged to the dollar, which creates tremendous amount of pressure uh, with this uh, divergence. You know, think about the real estate market, the valuations, the, the, the hidden leverage that perhaps is in the system and what it means for, for a country that is face with these uh, issues from their neighbor, China, and, and, and much more than a neighbor, uh, faced uh, with, with uh, you know, you're driving the car with the accelerator and the brakes of someone that is in a completely different situation. So uh, you, you're bound to have accidents. If we look at the real estate sector in China, uh, it's obviously one of the hot potatoes um, in, in the global media uh, picture right now. As a consequence of a lot of stories of regular people uh, refusing to pay mortgages on uh, on home builder projects, what do you make of the situation in Chinese real estate currently? Well, it's I think it reminds me of of what we experienced in certain parts of the world, um, uh, like Spain, <laughs> where I'm from, uh, and before in the previous crisis. And there's this perception, you know, a lot of the wealth of, of the country is being placed into, into bricks and mortar. And I think this idea that, again, faced with uh, short-term problems, I can, I can delay, transfer, transform. I think this uh, centralized investment, this uh, encouragement is leading to levels that have multiple implications. First of all, uh, you know, the, the purchase power of the Chinese and the situation of the economy the uh, the ability for them to buy these these new properties at the prices that they're expected, the kind of leverage and and the debt uh, that has been used to finance this growth is totally unsustainable, and uh, you get to the point where you know uh, these things become systemic. Uh, I think uh, both of you have been touching this on, on media, putting fantastic numbers. You know the size of the market is completely staggering, and uh, and you think about what it means when you've pushed this so far. And, and what you need to do to let alone uh, keep it there, you know, but, but prevent an uh, utter collapse. I think it has very deep implications for, for the wealth effect, for the economy, uh, for the savings, for the uh, expectations for future growth. Uh, and this is not a Chinese issue. This is obviously a global issue. China has been an engine for, for much of the global growth in many commodities and many things. And if you decided to take the foot of the accelerator, or even put a, uh, your foot on the brake, uh, this is going to have very uh, deep implications. And if you try to pretend that nothing's happening and you start doing what China does best, which is let's bail these guys out, let's uh, you know pretend that you know let's just nationalize this problem. Effectively, what you get is more of the same. You're not uh, everything. The degree of freedom of these imbalances is always the currency. Always, you can pretend you're the, you're Venezuela. You're Argentina, you're whoever, you pretend you're in control, you can print as much as you want, you can uh, lend, subsidize, uh, bail out whoever you want. The degree of freedom of the system is the currency. And that's why I think uh, all these issues eventually materialize in, uh, in, in, in a loss in, in real terms. And, and, and I think the currency is the degree by which this will give way. That's a very good way to put it, uh, Diego. And I think I tweeted or I put it on the Macro Compass a few days ago. The Chinese real estate market capitalization was estimated at $55 trillion by the end of 2021, which is the single largest asset class in the world 
by reference, US equities at the end of 2021 were like 42 trillion, I think, market cap. So we're talking even larger than the US equities combined. It's absolutely huge. Um, it's mind-boggling. It, it's ridiculous. So of course, now it's, it's lower than it was at December 2021. But my question mm-hmm. is, because of the inherent leverage that is out there, and because China's credit creation has been basically the engine of cyclical growth in the world, one can say since basically since they joined WTO, or at least since 2000, one can say that this has really been the engine of cyclical growth. We are seeing quite a deleveraging happening in there. And at the same time, we are seeing China being a, generally speaking, a commodity importer, or, you know, they, let's say China having other structural issues apart from the real estate situation. How can the Chinese renminbi and every currency that is priced around that actually still be where it is today? And how long can this last? China positioned itself as uh, as a very strong contender to to try to, to to attract and position itself as a as on the race for global reserve currency. I I think it's uh, it, it's a very strategic play. Uh, but uh, as as you as you hint or you point out from the from the question, I, I think it's uh, highly unstable. I think the there is absolutely no way you can uh sustain uh what's been happening because of the size the existing problem and what's uh, lying ahead and i think many of the dynamics that were supporting this this chinese yuan uh in fact has been one of the best performing currencies since uh they, they had this this um, issues back uh, about 18 months ago with with COVID. uh you're in a situation where uh, on an absolute basis and relative basis uh, it seems completely out of whack. It is completely out of whack with its own fundamentals. Uh, from a, a strategic perspective, China, I think, has, again, favored and valued more the sense of stability uh, at, at a cost of, of, of perhaps lack of competitiveness. But I think the you look at what's happened to the dollar-yen or to the euro on a relative basis, and uh, the, the yuan is massively lagging. Um, so it's... In my, in my opinion, a, a very artificial setup. Uh, I'm not going to get into uh, more uh, conspiratory sides about you know the onshore-offshore market and potential uh, accounting issues that things don't, don't, don't truly add up. But I, 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 I believe there's some of that happening. And, and I think ultimately the yuan, uh, you know, if you're unable to take a, a small loss, you take a big one in the, in the long term. I think all this pressure is building up. And, uh, and again, you can pretend as much as you want that everything's okay, that everything's stable, but eventually two plus two is four. And I think the yuan uh, is due for a, a significant uh, uh, move lower, both on structural problems as well as tactical dynamics, such as you know, uh, the, the monetary divergence uh, that we discussed earlier. If we take a step back, Diego, and look at the developments in the dollar versus the yuan during the trade war, um, I found a very clear pattern. Uh, Every time Trump increased tariffs on China, uh, it seemed as if the dollar strengthened versus the uh, Chinese renminbi, right? We are currently almost in the opposite situation, right? Biden is at least considering moving um, tariffs in the other direction. What do you make of the geopolitical risks surrounding dollar versus CNOY and the link to trade. This is very interesting. And uh, I'm going to take a step back because ultimately on a macro perspective, I I talked earlier about uh, how we transfer problems through monetary uh, policies. And uh, one very well issue uh, or dynamic is currency wars. So I'm going to dilute, basically uh, devalue my currency because I want to be more competitive. I want your uh, investments in factories. I want your employment. I want your capital. I want your technology. So it's a no-brainer to try to keep a, a weak currency and, 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 and beggar thy neighbor the problem. If once this starts to happen on a global scale, and you know, if you look at Europe, I would argue that Draghi uh, had no choice. You know, he had to defend himself from the monetary abuse that sent euro dollar to 150 following. Uh, the 2008 and, and negative interest rates is the result of this relative nature of monetary policy. The only reason we ever have negative interest rates in Europe is because the U.S. was at zero. Simple as that. Had the Fed been at 2%, we would have never, ever, ever seen negative interest rates in Europe. So in this relative game of currency wars, you can take things to an extreme. Eventually, uh, you're not solving the problem. You're creating this huge mess. But trade wars, as you point out, 
it's uh, kind of the, 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 the defense mechanism against currency wars. So Alfonso, you want to devalue by 20%, you want my everything, I, I understand, but you know what? I'm going to tariff you by 20%. The minute you do that and you offset the impact, you are it's kind of checkmate on, on, uh, <laughs> on, on, on currency wars, right? But it comes at a big price as well. It comes at a price of even further inflation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the dynamic and the reason why the U.S. Uh, pushing on, on trade wars with China was so bad for the yuan and pushed it where it went, it's precisely because the emperor had no clothes. And, and it sort of exposed that. What's happening now on the flip side, and I think there's a lot of narrative, I, I'm not going to say it's negligible, uh, but the order of magnitude of the problems that we're talking about relative to the impact in some of these things, I don't think it's uh, sufficiently enough to, to actually keep things in balance. Uh, uh, that, that's in my opinion. We're talking about you know, trade dynamics and relatively small percentages. So whilst currency and trade wars are intrinsically uh, joint and we'll continue to see more of the same, and I think they matter, uh, they're probably more asymmetric uh, to, to the negative side, uh, particularly to China. Another potential divergency, Diego, that I wanted to pick your brain about um, is the divergency in demographic projections between the US and China. Uh, you talked about the one-child policy in China earlier. And if you look at projections on Chinese demographics from the United Nations, the World Bank, et cetera, they look absolutely awful for the next 30 to 40 years. And I mean, it's pretty easy to project demographics because it's take, it takes 20 years to create a 20-year-old, right? Uh, so what do you make of the <laughs> demographic projections and the spillovers to structural growth and monetary policy? No, it's brutal. Uh, and, and I think this is one of those uh, short-term gain, long-term pain uh, dynamics that we face across the board. And I think, uh, again, I, I saw those numbers. I think one of you sent it. I can't remember, but I, I love your work, by the way. And I, and I think some of this stuff that you sent where Nigeria, if I remember, is number two and China's way down, it's, it was kind of shocking. But, uh, but yeah, this is, this is big. I mean, you, you are effectively taking short-term measures and growth that leads to this, these expectations that we need to keep this wheel going. And then you, you fast forward, uh, you know, 20, 25 years, as you said, and, and you see a completely different dynamic. Um, you know, 25 years is not what it used to be, you know, when you're my age <laughs> and it goes fast. And, uh, and this, is, uh, this is really a major dynamic in the long term. The markets may not pay sufficient attention, but these things are, are real. Um, but I think there's another divergence uh, that, I, if I may uh, bring out, which is the energy. Uh, we talked about commodities in general, the consumption side and what it means. But I think this is a, a divergence that is much more U.S. versus the rest of the world. Uh, and I think China and Europe are particularly, uh, you know, stuffed in, in, in this side. And it brings back the issues of, of uh, how governments uh, deal with problems, Right. So let's talk about energy subsidies, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and what it means. And, and so you, you, we live in a situation where uh, the Russia-Ukraine uh, war and uh, gas prices in the US versus Europe uh, are, you know, for those who are not familiar with commodities, uh, you know, commodities uh, in many cases are very regional markets. So natural gas being a gas, uh, trades in the US at a certain price and tr trades in other parts of the world, different prices. It's not so easy to arbitrage. These differentials can, can be very wide. And the current situation means that uh, the US at $7 a MBTU, the other difficulty with commodities is the units, right? You talk about these funky units. How, how do I convert euros, megawatt hour versus uh, dollars uh, MMBTU? So we, if you bring these things back to apples with apples, uh, we look at a situation where the US natural gas and sort of power markets as a result in some way are uh, trading around $45 a barrel of oil equivalent with oil in the region of 100, 110 and Europe gas prices at close to 300. So we're talking about an order of magnitude of a competitive disadvantage that is brutal and that is literally destroying uh, production capacity, not only in the short term, but in the long term. For a country like Germany, where you are, you need this for production, it's, uh, it's huge. For a country like China, it impacts as well. But all these divergences are massive, and they're not just tactical issues easy to resolve. They are, and they have, in my opinion, permanent damage. 
So you add to what is the response from China? What is the response from Europe? It's like, well, I cannot print oil. I cannot print natural gas. But guess what? I can print euros or I can print yuan to subsidize the natural gas. Two major problems with this. The first one is by fixing the price domestically, uh, you are preventing the uh, demand destruction that is needed by the market. You need much higher commodity prices. So if in Saudi Arabia, when electricity was free, people would leave the aircon on and the windows open because it was free, right? So if you have no price sensitivity, you don't destroy that demand, which means prices need to go way higher than they would otherwise have to go. And what it means is that the other side, which is the government effectively printing euros and taking debt to subsidize this, it's digging a bigger hole. So this is another driver that I think comes back to the issue that not solving the problems, but rather kicking, delay, and transforming. And I think the energy market is, is a key source of divergence, which adds to this further pressure on inflation, which has a double kicker, unfortunately, for these guys, because it's high commodity prices, high subsidies, high printing, and on top of that, a weaker currency, which makes the purchasing dollars even more strong. So it's a very delicate, very complex, very dangerous dynamic that is, uh, you know, it's, it's going to break many things along the way. So, Diego, basically, uh, we can say that you can print one or currency, but you can't print oil, and it makes 20 years to make it 20 years old or something similar, Andreas, <laughs> to summarize the demographics and the uh, commodity currency issues of, of the many structural imbalances that China has. But before, you mentioned Hong Kong, which is mostly considered to be a derivatives market of China at the end of the day under certain aspects and circumstances. And I think you have an even a stronger opinion on Hong Kong that I want you to um, highlight a little bit more with us because it's ultimately going to lead to your trade idea as well. Yeah, I think Hong Kong, as I mentioned earlier, has it's almost like the business model has changed. You know, we mentioned earlier the, uh, the harbor and the, the trade uh, we mentioned the financial hub. We mentioned the uh, security. We mentioned the the hub for where would you park your savings, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and how the, the business model has changed. You're facing uh, a very interesting situation where uh, it's almost 39 uh, years ago, uh, you know, they decided to put the peg. I think it's it's been phenomenal. It has survived many, many uh, cycles. And, uh, and this is a very narrow, they, they give themselves a little bit of room the, between 775 uh, Hong Kong dollars to 785. So it's, it's a tiny, tiny room to maneuver. And it's, uh, that, that range, what it does is, you know, it's a currency board. So effectively, uh, unlike other uh, setups like uh, Argentina or whoever who would decide to, to kind of peg, this is pretty much a one for one with dollar backing. So this is a real dynamic that makes it very robust and that's why it's lasted so long and you go from uh, these divergences in the cycle it's almost like you build and reduce the inventory of dollars to support it uh, obviously the inventory is asymmetric you could accumulate infinite amount of dollars on the other hand you can run out of dollars right so uh, generally speaking these these pegs tend to be more fragile on one side than than the other and uh and and what we're seeing is through all the reasons that we discussed uh, is the structural nature, the business plan, the, the, the headwinds from, from China. The, the game has, has, has moved. Uh, I think we're in a situation where you're already at the top of that band. Uh, think about water, right? Water, for those that are engineers, you know, when you, when you apply heat, you know, it, it's almost like the, the, you, you can apply heat and it converts into temperature until you reach zero or 100. At that point, you know, water might still be in liquid form. You're still applying heat. The temperature doesn't move until it, it goes again, right? So the, the, this, we're at that point, we're at 785, that pressure is being applied. And because of the imbalances that cannot be resolved through price, you're basically left with, a, with an outflow of dollars. And this is a game where you can actually pretty much count the chips uh, because it's, it's official and you can extrapolate of you know the dynamics, and I think that unlike uh, previous cycles, what's happening as, as we discussed, uh, the the dynamics here are very structural. The game has changed, and arguably, I think this uh, in general it always translates to, through the currency. I think in this case, in this case in particular, you have a very 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 asymmetric case that the market I don't think is properly pricing 
uh, in terms of the risk reward and the and the probability distributions around these dynamics. It feels like I've heard this tune before, not necessarily from you, Diego, but from other uh, portfolio managers such as Carl Bass. I, I mean, this risk of a DPEG of the Hong Kong dollar has been highlighted for at least five to ten years. What makes you uh, feel like the risk reward in betting against this peg is good right now? Well, many reasons. Uh, your downside is extremely limited, so uh, it depends how you structure it. Uh, but I think the um, uh, the list is very long. Uh, unlike previous times, you know what you need here is a catalyst. You know, and and also uh, the the dynamics. It's almost like um, in my book that I talked about. You know, in physics you have a stable equilibrium. Think about. Uh, a ball with a little ball, you you move it and it goes back to your equilibrium point. You could have something that is very is called unstable equilibrium in physics. You put the ball at the top, you touch it and it goes. But we have something called metastable equilibriums, and this is like a, a ball. You can you can move the ball and the ball will stay in the ball until you apply sufficiently large force, and then you fall off the table, right? So I think we're talking about a metastable equilibrium. You're talking about a metastable equilibrium where things will remain stable. Uh, within certain boundaries. But many of those boundaries and the force that we're applying to the ball is sufficiently large that I think the ball will drop off. And why it's happening now is primarily through the monetary divergence that we're talking about uh, and, and the structural uh, business business plan. So I think that, uh, and, and this takes me to a point that is interesting, is you, you would argue, uh, and, and perhaps the argument that is used the most to 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 uh, to defend the the peg is yeah as you said it's been uh, discussed for 39 years never happened and by the way they have 450 billion to defend um, well I would ask you you know how, you know how many dollars uh, you know you, when when oil collapsed from 140 to to um, to 30 back in the day in the in the in the oil bust and the uh, we you know how many dollars did people like Russia spend to to defend the ruble. And, and the answer is zero. I mean, why would you defend something that is, is undefendable or for the sake of defending? So the argument that uh, Hong Kong will spend very precious dollars to defend the undefendable, uh, even in that scenario, you're still two, three years away from, you know, at the current pace, which I think will accelerate. So I, I, I believe there are multiple reasons why, uh, you know, both structurally and tactically things have changed. The pressure is building and increasing, and the level of outflows, it's only going to get worse. The pressure that you're applying through the economy with higher rates, which are effectively U.S. monetary policy, is going to be unsustainable. And you could even argue that politically, why would you be pegged to the dollar if you, if you can be pegged to the, to the yuan? So a, a step in the middle would say, well, we don't want to be free float, but let's just peg ourselves to somebody else. I think even that scenario... I think it's tremendously bearish. I do believe the the fact that people have talked about it for the last five, 10 years shows you there's a, structure, a structural case. I think that structural case has become way worse. And tactically, I think there are so many forces pushing in, in this direction and why I think, you know, the, the time frame is always unknown, but it's extraordinarily asymmetric in my view. And when you compare that to what the market is telling you, I think that asymmetry is is blatant. So the market seems to be in that very complacent camp of uh, they got it under control. It's been around forever and it will stay around forever. I, I don't quite think that's going to be the case. But again, even if you were wrong, uh, your downside is stupidly small. So it's something that I think has a place in a portfolio and can give you a, a very interesting positive surprise with negligible downside. So Diego, I think by now it's time to call the trade on the macro trading floor. It won't be a surprise, I guess, to, to many out there. So my last question for the interview is what's the trade? And by the way, as we ask every guest, what could go wrong with your trade as well? What's the, the downside scenario? Sure. Well, the, the trade that I, I propose is a trade that we have uh, in, uh, in, in, in our own books. So I am... Uh, Full disclosure, this is, some, is a theme that we've been tracking for a long time uh, and, and we've built a, a position. Um, it's, uh, it's in the FX markets. Uh, it's uh, basically dollar versus Hong Kong. And it's a two-year two uh, call option on, on dollar versus Hong Kong. So it's basically a dollar call, uh, Hong Kong dollar put. 
the the option market is an insurance play. So you're spending the the premium. Uh, in this case, uh, we put a strike that is slightly out of the the band. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, you could do multiple variations. I think uh, for uh, non-professional investors, uh, they will need to access perhaps the trade on a on a delta one forward basis or an add the money call. Yeah. Uh, we we have access perhaps to uh, to to other structures, and uh, for me. Uh, and out of the money call is is more interesting because the market this is effectively a, a by model distribution it either stays here or it moves uh, but when you price these things the way the market is doing it which is more like a, a black and Scholes Monte Carlo log normal distribution uh, is is interesting that by going very little out of the money you get a very significant discount so to put it simple you know not the money call might cost you one percent these are real numbers. For a two-year option, so you're risking 50 bips, uh, 0.5% per annum. But by going barely 1% out of the money, uh, it's going to cost you roughly half, a bit a bit more than half. Uh, I would rather put twice the amount of volume in my bet uh, uh, because it's either going to pay or not. Uh, but if it pays, it's going to pay a lot. So uh, in that sense, we, we structure this two-year call option with options that are about 1% out of the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're outside of the strike. Uh, the worst case scenario for us is uh, obviously the break, uh, the, the peg stays, uh, in which case uh, the option could expire uh, worthless. Uh, and, and that's a risk we are very happy and willing to, to take. Uh, depending on how much you want to size this trade, we're talking about, as I said earlier, we're risking in the region of 50 basis points per notional. I, I actually built it in... In a, in a meaningful size. Uh, but it's interesting because it's not only a directional bet. It does, by buying the option, it's not only a bet on what is the uh, Hong Kong dollar the, the versus the dollar going to do. It's also a bet on volatility. And right. implied volatility right now is roughly around 2%. So to be honest, that 2% implied vol, it's uh, for those who don't follow the, the markets, it's, you know, uh, Euro dollar today is realizing uh, 10 to 12 percent, right? So two percent is is uh, 15, 20 percent of that. Uh, if you think about commodities like uh, gold or copper or oil, this volatility can go to 20, 30, 50, right? So implied volatility of two percent gives you the standard deviation of that distribution. The market is expecting an incredibly narrow outcome, which is consistent with all these years. Uh, it is certainly not pricing, in my opinion, that uh, by model and that possibility of a break. The question would be, and your guess is as good as mine, uh, if it goes, uh, how much will it go uh, and buy? Uh, I conservatively would argue that it could go by at 30%. Um, but who cares? Uh, honestly, <laughs> you're risking 0.5% to make, you know, uh, 25, 30%, uh, so 25 to 50x uh, per leg. So this is the kind of trade that, uh, you know, the liquidity versus maturity, etc. cetera, uh, I think two years is a sweet spot. Generally, I know that you like to ask for more like six-month trades, but uh, I have to say that you can buy a two-year option and sell it after six months. Of course. If that was, if that was the case, Ceteris uh, paribus, if nothing happened, uh, the decay of this trade would be 0.1%. Uh, so in the add the money option, if you bought the option for 1%, that's a two-year call. Uh, after six months, the 18-month would still be 0.9%. So effectively, in six months, nothing's happened. You were wrong. You decide to get out. Well, it didn't really cost you much at all. So the downside uh, on a outright basis, if I let this thing expire as my premium, my downside from here till the point I exit, it's obviously a function of what the different drivers are going to do, which is the spot, the interest rate differentials, the volatility and the skew. And I think all these are very much uh, in your favor in this kind of trade. Um, So uh, again, if you were to play this by just buying the Delta one, so just buying uh, the forward, uh, which is the spot price at a future date, 
you could be uh, relatively safe because if you were wrong, it could theoretically only move against, you know, the way to 775. And that 775, they can defend with infinite bullets. So theoretically, you could argue why bother and buy the option if I can just buy the, the, the outright. Um, I do it because of risk management. I do it because I prefer, I like the, the trade. I think volatility is artificially cheap and I like the leverage. I like the idea that I can risk 1%, 2% of my portfolio, sleep at night for the next two years, and if something happens, I'll make 50%, 100% overnight. Uh, whereas if you actually have this risk on an outright basis, we know that with 99.99%, the floor should hold, but we saw that movie with Euro-Swiss, and it was career ending for many people, right? So I, I don't. I think ultimately we don't uh, take comfort from those uh, central bank puts. But when you buy your option, I, I don't use VAR ninety five in this case. It's not value at risk with ninety five percent confidence. It's not VAR ninety nine. It's VAR one hundred <laughs> with one hundred percent certainty. One hundred percent certainty, you can lose more than your premium. And this is the reason why I might be spending some money. Maybe I could save it. But on the other hand, I know my downside. I like the vol and I like the leverage and I like the carry. So I, I think it's a trade that it's going to get very interesting. Um, and you're going to start to see a lot of headlines every month counting the chips of how many dollars is the Hong Kong Monetary Authority using to defend the peg. And people will figure out at that pace, how uh, long will it take before they run out? And what if the pace accelerates? And the third question that I posed earlier, why use precious dollars to defend the undefendable? Diego, what a uh, tremendous way to conclude the interview with the with you this week. Uh, a very compelling story. Uh, and I also like how you explained the rationale behind how you traded this potential DPEG of the dollar versus the Hong Kong dollar. And finally, I find it kind of amusing that we are a Dane, an Italian, and a Spaniard talking about a trade between the US and Asia. <laughs> But I mean, <laughs> um, nonetheless, a good trade, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the show, Diego. <laughs> It's been my absolute pleasure, guys. Diego, actually, before I let you go, I was about, was about to forget that this interview has been really awesome. I want to give you the chance to um, basically tell our audience where to find more about you. Well, um, you know, uh, first of all, before we conclude, I want to congratulate both of you guys as, as uh, younger blood in this in this macro market. And I think you are uh, doing a phenomenal job. And I'm very happy that you're putting together this podcast as well. And I feel very uh, honored to, to be part of it. So keep the great work. Uh, I am uh, I have a Twitter handle, uh, Parilla Diego, uh, double R, double L. Uh, I don't think any French in history has ever spelled uh, my, my surname correctly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, Parilla Diego, uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, you can subscribe to, 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 to just the Twitter. I also have a, a newsletter that I call the Antibubble Report. Uh, I'm not very active, um, but I, I tend to uh, respond. So when I see or hear things that I that provoke my 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 thinking, either because it's a very stupid thing uh, that has been said, like the in the crypto space, uh, or very you know crazy things that you hear that force you to to at least challenge and, and position the other side of, of the view, or whether it's um, uh, because it's a genuinely great question that helps you to 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 get better and think. Um, But yeah, uh, on top of that, if uh, people are interested, uh, I'm also a, a manager. Uh, our strategy, uh, I use the, the analogy that portfolios are like like football teams, uh, calcio or uh, or soccer teams. Um, uh, you know, we, we would be more of the goalkeeper or the defender. So we, we've designed the strategy uh, to, to provide investors with a liquid uh, alternative that uh, will do well when the team needs it the most, which is during crisis. And so we have a, basically a, a long volatility bias, a long tail risk bias, uh, and all very macro. So bets like this against you know, uh, insurance plays are, are, are core part of what we do. Um, but yeah, you, people can find out more and reach out through, through Twitter 
if any interest uh, through direct message. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I just enjoy the discussion uh, in uh, and I think we, we keep learning uh, with this interaction. So thank you. I hope it was helpful to, to people and I look forward to much success on all sides. It definitely was, Diego. Thanks for being here with us. My absolute pleasure. So, Andreas, we heard Diego Parilla from uh, Quadriga Asset Management, Global Macro Hedge Fund Manager, coming up with his trade on the macro trading floor. He is trying to break the Hong Kong peg. After 30 plus years of nobody achieving that, maybe we have the first time ever. And we hosted the guy who called the breaking peg of the Hong Kong dollar. The trade is to be short the Hong Kong dollar and long the US dollar against it, effectively betting on, on a peg break. And he wants to structure that via buying puts on the Hong Kong and calls on the US dollars, slightly out of at the money forwards, also to monetize the volatility uh, that not to monetize, but let's say to, to bet on a higher realized volatility than the implied volatility, which is priced in the put, because he, he claims that the implied volatility is artificially priced low, looking at the artificially low volatility that's been realized because the peg has held for so long. So the trade is in short, short Hong Kong dollar, long US dollars. Now, what do you make of the trade? Well, I, given his perspective, um, he's running like a defensive hedge fund. Then I perfectly understand this bet. Because, I mean, if the world truly falls apart, if the Fed is too aggressive, uh, and if China's zero COVID policies will continue to put a lid on the uh, People's Bank of China and force them into easing policies, then this could obviously happen. Um, and in such a scenario, I guess most other asset classes will suffer big time and Diego will be the star of the show, right? Um, I'm not sure that this is a good trade to put in a base case model portfolio, if you know what I mean. Um, so it, in any case, uh, this is sort of a tail risk bet, right? Um, and therefore something that you should only consider adding to your portfolio if you have a bunch of other positions that you kind of want to tail risk hedge against. Um, I like the idea of doing that, uh, but I think there are better ways of proxy betting on this kind of scenario uh, in a more base case friendly manner. Um, because let's assume that Diego's uh, assumptions are right, that the, the Federal Reserve will still continue to forcefully hike interest rates over the coming quarters. Um, fair enough. I think that's a decent base case. And if he's right that China is suffering from much greater structural issues than what is currently priced in, um, we see this bank run in, in China and have, uh, unfolding right now. Um, I mean, it could be the case. And I think um, even though it's very tricky to, to follow the uh, new stream out of China, that things look kind of fishy at the moment. Um, so I tend to like that spread trade that the Federal Reserve will forcefully continue to hike and that the People's Bank of China will have to step in with some sort of more or less permanent easing measures over the next couple of years to ensure that everything doesn't fall apart. Um, if that's true, then I think a good way of proxy trading this is to be short broad commodities. We talked about that trade last week again, because if you, if you strengthen the dollar via a firm monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, that's certainly not positive for commodities in general. Um, and secondly, if People's Bank of China needs to ease policy to a large extent, it's due to the fact that China um, is slowing or even uh, outright declining. Um, and if those two assumptions are true, then commodities will not perform. I can guarantee you that. Um, so by the end of the day, I continue to like uh, the SA. LL Wisdom Tree Broad Commodity uh, Daily Short ETF as a way of implementing this trade in a in a more base case friendly manner. Yeah. If you want instead to implement the trade directly on the Hong Kong dollar, the only alternative you have is to do that via options or via an FX margin account effectively uh, that allows you to short the Hong Kong dollar and to long the US dollar. Um, alternatively, if you want to do it with an ETF, what you could do, Andreas, is to uh, buy the Wisdom Tree ETF that shorts the renminbi and goes long the dollar. There is a, a very simple ETF that does that. 
not extremely big, not hugely liquid, but pretty okay for retail sizes, I would say, because if the Hong Kong, here you go. So if the Hong Kong peg is actually under pressure, for sure the Chinese renminbi isn't going to have a lot of fun, I would say. So it's a very close proxy to the original trade. I wanted to discuss with you for a second um, implementation of the original trade from Diego when it comes to buying puts slightly out of the money as well to bet on realized volatility being higher than the implied volatility in the direction, obviously, being on a weaker Hong Kong dollar. And he said, uh, well, you know, the trade has a skewed risk reward. And when I analyze this sort of trades, I look at basically buying the puts, which means spending a premium, and that's the maximum loss that I can achieve. And then I look at the potential profit, right, that I'm going to be able to to extract from the trade. A skewed risk reward, though, is not necessarily defined only by the output of the trade, so the potential payoff, maximum loss, and maximum gain you can make out of the trade, but also to the probabilities that this maximum loss and maximum gain will unfold, because otherwise I can buy a call or a put or anything I want, and I can call it a skewed risk reward, because in most cases, I know that the maximum loss will be X and the maximum reward will be larger than X. So... Uh, betting against breaking a peg is very complicated. Diego is a very smart guy and he knows exactly what he's doing right here, right now. I just wanted to give a, a word in general here that this would sound very similar to Blue Bay, the large hedge fund who decided to go against the Bank of Japan, or it could sound similar. They went and shorted JGBs, what, a month, month and a half ago? And uh, Kuroda just said, I'm sorry, guys, no, because my balance sheet is around about infinite. So I decided a 10-year JGB yield should be 25 basis point, and you can short as much as you want, and you can bleed carry in the meantime, but sorry, you're going to be stopped out. And uh, what's your take on, on structuring the trade? <laughs> that was the diplomatic version of Corona saying fuck off to those trying to short <laughs> pretty, pretty JGBs. Much. Yeah, pretty but, much. Yeah, um, but by the end of the day, you're obviously right. Um, because um, if you just look at this very simple risk reward of paying a premium against a potential huge upside in an option structure, uh, then, of course, I could just buy a call option uh, on euro versus dollar uh, with a strike level of two and a half, pay nothing for it and say that I have the best risk reward in the world. But it, it will obviously more or less never materialize, right? Um, so to that extent, uh, you obviously need to look at your implied probabilities versus what is priced in. Uh, I know that's a very tricky calculation to do, uh, but that's by the end of the day what you need to do when you look at options. Um, and to me, the probability of a Hong Kong dollar um, peg break is still very, very low. I'm not saying it's zero, uh, but close to zero. Uh, and Paying half a percent to bet on a probability close to zero. I mean, it's so, it works as a defensive hedge. So it's very clear that Diego's subjective probability is higher uh, than zero, yeah. marginally higher than zero. Otherwise, he wouldn't see the value in that. Andreas and I just wanted to point out that a convex payoff structure and a convex risk reward has to be weighted against the probability, not only against the payoff. Otherwise, you can buy a call on anything, pay very little if it's out of the money and call that a skewed risk reward. It's not necessarily true. When it comes to the comparison to Bank of Japan, also, it's an example. It's not exactly right because the Bank of Japan can expand their balance sheet in their local currency and they can buy domestic government bond denominated in their local currency with it. It's a much easier task for the central bank to do that than it is for the Hong Kong Monetary Authority to defend the peg, even with the large amount of dollar holdings that they have. If things would worsen very, very quickly, as Diego pointed out, there could be a decision making where they might have actually to decide whether to defend the peg or to own dollars for, you know, um, for later on effectively. So being a, an FX release valve problem, actually the the Hong Kong Monetary Authority task, it is more objectively more difficult than the Bank of Japan task. Yeah, true. And I think by the end of the day, if you ask Diego for a base case trade, then he would have picked something else, right? So this is something you could add to your portfolio, but not something that you should bet on as the base case, probably. Pretty much so, Andreas. Um, I would say that uh, before we close the show, still worth reminding people that uh, in September, there's going to be the Digital Asset Summit Conference from Lockworks in New York, 13th, 14th of September. If you want, as a family office institutional investor, but even as a retail guy interested to understand the macro landscape, 
behind the crypto space as a macro asset class. You can join us there. You'll find me, Daniel DiMartino. You'll find Mike Green. You'll find other good speakers all in New York. And as a listener of the macro trading floor, you get a discount of 20% by uh, using the macro code M-A-C-R-R-O, macro code in the link that we will put in the description of the YouTube videos and the podcast um, release as well in every podcast app. Really hope to see you guys there because I'll be there as well. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, I want to say thank you for listening again this week. Uh, remember to review us on podcast apps if you want to secure continued growth and free content each and every Sunday at the macro trading floor. Goodbye from me, Andreas Steno. And from Alfonso Peccadillo. Ciao, guys. Ciao.